Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So David, are you getting sick of me? This is the third time you've seen me in two days. Well, (laughs) we've got a new supply of Negronis, so that is definitely helping. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I'm glad I'm doing something right. Where's mine? Oh, well, I know. We, we, I, I we'll, set, we'll send you one a vir- virtual Zoom Negroni. Yeah, there we'll, you go. Zoom needs to sort out their um, <laughs> bartending skills. Uh, but uh, yeah, how are you, Cara? Very well, thank you. Very Excellent. good. How, how's your week been so far? Have you been mad busy? Um, well, it's only Monday, so. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I assumed yeah. as a derm, it'd be mad busy. <laughs> it um, it was mad busy today. I have, um, yep, been at work all day, rushed home, put one of the three children in bed and joined you lovely gentlemen. Fantastic. Now I, I have to say thank you. Cause I, I asked you very late notice to, to come and help us with a podcast because I'm going away on holiday and we had a bit of a disaster with a few scheduled podcasts. And then I saw your talk last week at the Allegan Medical Institute. And I thought that is really fascinating and we'll, we'll get on to what the topic is, but thank you for, for, you know, making the time to do this at such short notice. Pleasure. Um, and I guess for the listeners, if you, if you haven't heard about Cara, we'll get her to introduce herself, but she did a great podcast with us. I think it was episode 89. It's a long, a long time, time ago. ago. <laughs> that was nearly a hundred podcasts ago. And that was on about sun protection, um, and a little bit about skin cancers. So welcome back. Um, did you want to, you know, introduce to the, the listeners who maybe have joined since your first uh, time with us a little bit about your background, Cara? Sure. Um, So I am a dermatologist uh, based in Melbourne and my my background, well, it's, you know, varied. I, brief overview, grew up in Tasmania uh, where I went to medical school and moved to Melbourne shortly thereafter and studied dermatology um, in Melbourne, a little bit in the UK actually, and Subsequently, have subspecialized, I suppose, in two main areas, which would be cosmetic dermatology, which I would include sort of acne rosacea, um, acne scarring treatments, and um, injectables and laser treatments, and also skin cancer is my mother, my other main area of interest. And so I do do a lot of procedural dermatology, really. Um, a lot of surgery and um, injectables. And over the past five years or so, I've been a trainer and educator in the area of cosmetic injectables as well and done some teaching around Australia and even internationally. There you go. It's fantastic. I want to know why you left Tasmania because I it's the one place in Australia that I've been wanting to go to. I've got friends down there. It looks stunning, great seafood, beautiful um, scenery and landscapes, amazing art. Now you're in Melbourne. It's a very nice place to visit. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> no, it's a really, really lovely place and I've, I've got a great fondness for Tasmania and um, I left really because, you know, there are very limited specialty training opportunities. Right. You can't train as a dermatologist in Tasmania. Right. And um, unfortunately I met a Melbourneian and his job wasn't really um, 
uh, amenable to working in Tasmania. So I just never really considered going back and, you know, you establish yourself and Keep going, really. There you go. Well, I'll have to get some tips from you before off, off air before I head down there because I'm heading <laughs> there later this year. Plenty, um, plenty to go and do and see in Tasmania. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. We're just going to record out there. I've not been either. Yeah. We should, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, I've heard it's like, nice cheese and wine. and Well, it's surrounded by ocean, so the seafood there is amazing as well, mm. I've heard. So... Mm. Fantastic. So, Cara, um, we'll get into the topic of the day. So, we were at the Allegan Medical Institute last week. It was a train the trainer day, and you did the last talk of the day, and it was fantastic. Do you want to maybe, you know, I, I don't want to sort of give away the title of the study, but you did a study in the was it the first? Oh, you had multiple lockdowns in Melbourne, but in, in the <laughs> pandemic period when we were in various lockdowns. And I, I remember you asked me if I could put up a story to gather some data and hopefully I helped, but you know, I gather you did that with many injectors across the globe and, and Australia. So what, what was it all about and, and what was the name of the study? Okay, so it goes, um, the story goes well back before the pandemic, actually, <laughs> uh, a long, long way back. And um, I suppose the background to it is that um, I, you know, started teaching and training in cosmetic injectables just because, you know, I'm so good at it, I suppose, but, you know, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but really my passion has always been around um, consultation and communication. And um, I'm passionate about that because I really, you know, have always felt that well, what I enjoy about my job is, you know, the relationship with the patient and, um, you know, working really for, for patient satisfaction and trying to achieve that. But what I sort of found um, was that I was being asked more and more to kind of cover those topics. And I suppose it's because I, I'm interested in it. And um, as I was asked to teach more and more around consultation and communication, that led me to do more and more research. And the sad thing is that there is very little, um, when I say research, you know, researching the publications and so on that are out there. And there's really just very, very little published around patient satisfaction in cosmetic injectables in that field. Um, it's so limited that it's scary. And it really surprised me that um, really it hadn't been looked at. And I just felt that we really need some more data in this area because I'm really just teaching what I know from personal experience and um, from the way I work. I, I And I always sort of felt a little bit unjustified in saying, well, this is the way you should do it and this is what I think when I didn't really have much to back it up. So I sort of thought, well, you know, how hard can it be to do a bit of research around this <laughs> and get a bit of patient information to actually explore, um, you know, what I'm saying basically. What I found that it was a lot more work than I first thought <laughs> and um, it actually took it actually took almost three years from when I started the project through to actually even launching the survey online. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, that three years was spent, you know, obviously I have young children and a practice and all the other things as well, but I did a lot of research around how to write a survey, which is more complicated than you think. I got help from um, people with that, so a statistician who specialises in survey writing because there's all these tiny things like you can't use a double negative or it confuses people. And, and so, um, you know, I had someone look over my questions. Um, I had 
uh, a lot of a lot of help from colleagues who kind of read some of it and gave me ideas about you know what was too confusing. My first pilot study, which I did really with my patients, I had a lot more choices in a lot of the um, answers that I gave and what I found was that it got too confusing. It turned people off. So mm. I had to simplify some things around that. I then had to get ethics approval and, you know, that is not an easy task to do on your own and go through the whole ethics committee. But I wanted to make sure that I was doing it all the right way. Um, I got support from the public hospital where I work, which is St Vincent's in Melbourne, because I used the ethics committee through that hospital, but that meant my department had to back me mm. um, in doing this research. And so, you know, it was it was actually a big job, but it was something I was interested in and I was hopeful that it would, um, you know, be wow. worthwhile in the end. And, you know, really what I found in in the background research was that, there's a lot of evidence that what makes people happy is not necessarily, you know, what we always think it is. And that's quite apparent in business literature, but not really in the medical so much and definitely not in the cosmetic literature. So, and this is why people like yourself, Cara and Jake are doctors because, and, and I am not, because if I was to run this survey, I would have gone to www.surveymonkey.com. <laughs> I would have put about couple of dozen questions and she'd be right. I would have sent well, it out. Well, if it and- makes you feel any better, <laughs> I did use Survey Monkey. Oh, there you go. Halfway there. But yeah. I wouldn't have gone through ethics committee. I don't like, <laughs> what, what What does that actually mean? I mean, why, I mean, I'm, not, my, I'm, I'm being serious, half serious. It, like, w- what is it about getting approval to do a survey relate, relating to consultations that requires like an ethics mm, committee to sign I know. off on it? Look, it's, it's a great question because, um, you know, you could very easily argue that, you know, what what's What's the possible harm in a survey? What And that's basically what an ethics committee is looking at. Is there any possible harm in what you're doing? And, I mean, the reason I did it was because uh, there are many journals, actually, that will not publish any patient-related data or information of any sort unless it was approved by an ethics committee prior. Mm. So I didn't want to go through it all and then find that actually it was unpublishable. Mm. So... Um, but, it, I mean, it is a good process. It really makes you clarify and articulate exactly why you're doing it, what you hope to get out of it. Um, consider whether there is any possible harm. You know, are your quest- questions going to make people want something they didn't have before? Are your questions going to make people um, feel obliged to do something for you? You know, all those sorts of things. Um, And you really have to have um, some strong kind of academic support to say that this is worthwhile research to do, even if, you know, it's all voluntary and you're you're paying for it all yourself. Um, You know, and I think uh, like there is some, you know, good side to that, but it's just not an easy process to go through when you're, you know, a one-man show. Yeah. Um, Unplanned question, Cara. Mm -hmm. Um, Did this survey change the way you do consultations? Did it actually have any impact on you in terms of, you know, you were discussing around words and semantics and how, you know, certain, the way you might phrase something could influence someone's decision. I guess that could also be translated to when you're actually in the consultation room with someone and understanding how powerful words are. So has it changed your your approach? Look, it's hard to know. I think the process probably has changed or my my consultations and approach has certainly evolved over the years and the more I I kind of 
have an interest in it and consider how I do it and teach other people how I think it should be done, I'm sure mine has changed. Um, have the results actually changed what I do? Not not particularly. Um, okay. I've I've been surprised by some of the results, but I think um, it hasn't really changed the way I work particularly today. Mm-hmm. Important question for people listening. Was there any funding needed for this? Are there any sponsors, any disclaimers to make, or is it all your own personal work? Uh, 100% my own. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it hasn't been a hugely expensive project, but there there have been some, you know, costs involved. Just going to ethics committee yeah. is a significant cost. Um, the survey writing, the help I've had, some input um, from statisticians and so on. But, yes, so far um, it has been, yeah, 100% just funded by me. Fantastic. Right. And you the only author or you have any co-authors um, Look, on the paper? I've got some colleagues who have interest in this area and also a couple who helped with um, reading over the survey questions and so on. And they will, some of them will be authors on on my published papers, I hope, if they get published. Yeah. Um, co-authors, yes. So, look, the, the, there's a lot of data actually um, that... I will kind of continually be going through and hopefully, I mean, this is really what I called, um, so it's the cosmetic injectables patient experience. That's kind of, it's a mouthful, but that's what it's about. It's about the injectable patient experience. It's their experience, not kind of, you know, what we think they they did or didn't do. It's what their thoughts were, what their experience was. Yeah. But you know, I've called this an exploratory study because really, I mean, it's a survey and it is just starting in my uh, mind to get some information which may form the basis of further research down the track with a bit of luck. Okay. So obviously it was a survey. How did you distribute it and and how did you, you know, gather support from other injectors and so on to, to actually get that data? Yeah, this would have been helpful if I had about another 50,000 followers. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it was actually, that was the hardest bit actually. I I think, you know, no one really wants to fill in a survey. I didn't want to, I, um, I didn't want to incentivize anyone or yeah. advertise because I thought that would kind of bias like who the survey was exposed to. So it was it was done by what we call snowball recruiting. So really just word of mouth and trying to share the link and invite people to do it. And it was open to any single person that had ever had any cosmetic cosmetic injectable treatment and was over the age of 18. So the first question is basically an explanation of the study and a consent form they have to read to say they understand what the purpose of this study is. It had my contact details. Um, this is all as per ethics committee. And they had to agree um, that they were over 18 and um, were happy to proceed. And really it was shared around by a number of my colleagues, you included, I think, and um, those who had lots of followers were really the most helpful Um, (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, you'd get kind of a little wave and then I'd wait a while and then find someone else and ask them a favour and and various people shared it. Mm. I had a... um, Minimum that I wanted to get uh, over a thousand responses yep. for the survey. I ended up with around fourteen, fifteen hundred uh, who started it, and about twelve hundred completed all the questions. 
Yeah. So about 300 people got bored. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's just people have low attention spans these days and they're busy. Oh, sure. you know, they might start it, phone rings, mm-hmm. something's cooking on the stove or some disasters happen and they just forget. I've happened to me before. Oh, oh yeah. We're, we're, even when we tried the inside aesthetics survey, that oh. was difficult getting people to- <laughs> I think I even studied. I don't even think I would have answered our, our, our survey. <laughs> we were actually saying off air- um, you know, the type of people who answer a survey, let alone a cosmetic one, I, I wonder, I don't know if you have any data to support this, but do you sort of only get the, the the really positive people or the really negative people? You sort of get the two ends of the spectrum, but do you do you reckon you get the indifferent ones who are just, yeah, it's okay, or, or, or not? It's a bit like Google reviews. You're unlikely to leave a three out of five. You'll leave a five out of five or a one. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's it's difficult to know because the survey didn't really say, you know, um, are you a very happy or a very unhappy person? There seems to be actually a good range of yep. answers with respect to that. Yeah. Um, certainly there was a, a significant weighting towards people that were quite happy with their results and happy with their injectors. And, um, you know, absolutely, I think that's a, a bias Um that you expect in a in a survey that uh, asks people to answer these questions, but it's it's really difficult to know, and it's um, you know not definitely not considered to be a complete cross section of all injectable patients out there. As I said, it's really just a sort of um, information finding study. Yeah, and. What were the, the main objectives um, of the survey itself and were there any sort of pre, preconceived notions that you had or sort of hypothesis that you thought would, would ring true once you started analysing the results? Yes, yeah, so I suppose the primary um, goal of the survey was to determine how the patient-practitioner relationship, so how the relationship between clinician and patient or clinician and client affected the patient's perceived outcome. So really how do patients feel about their injectable treatments and how is that impacted by the relationship they have with their treating doctor? Hmm. And I asked lots of things like, you know, how many different um, injectable clinicians have you seen in the past? How many visits do you have a year? How how um, much does cost limit your treatments? Um, patients were asked to give their age. So, you know, I thought that things might vary quite a bit with age. And also patients were asked a lot about their mindset and feelings about injectable treatments going in. So th- that was for two reasons. One, to really explore the reasons and motivations and goals behind why people have cosmetic treatments in the first place, but also then how those motivations affect their choice of injectable practitioner, how many injectable practitioners they've seen and what their priorities are and um, satisfaction with outcomes as well. So there's lots of quite complicated, um, you know, things to tease out uh, between all these patient groups but um, I suppose what surprised me most was how consistent the results were um, across different age groups, different um, motivations and, um, you know, different uh, pa- what we would have thought were different patient groups. 
Yeah. You said uh, you had about 1,200 completed questionnaires. Do you, do you have any rough breakdowns of, you know, sex, age, location, you know, those kind of basic uh, demographics? Yes. So 95% female, 5% male, um, about 60% were Australian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have the location within Australia, only country. Yep. Um, so 60% were Australian. Uh, then it was about 10% from the US, 10% from the UK or a bit less. And then, you know, quite a, a big range of, with small, small numbers. Yeah. Age group, I had between age 18 and 24 were 8% of the mm-hmm. respondents. Age 25 to 34 was 36%. So that was the highest group. 35 to 44 was 27%. 45 to 55, 54 was 20%. And then 55 to 64 was uh, 7%. And then over 65s was 2%. So actually a, quite a good uh, range through the age groups with the majority being that sort of 25 to 35-year-old, which is probably not surprising given it was via online recruiting. <laughs> I was going to say, do you think that doing it mainly via Instagram had any weighting on, you know, your demographic or not? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I'd love to get a, a bigger cross-section. But having said that, I think that's not too dissimilar to the distribution of people having injectables overall. Yeah, yeah. So, um, again, it's difficult to know from from this because it wasn't controlled there was no control group or anything to compare about who who didn't answer it yeah and it's interesting you know we've had a number of injectors on speaking about various topics and when we ask them you know what's your proportion of female to male it's always you know 95 or 90 to 10 it's it's very rarely is it is mm. it more than that I, I think we had pega on from dubai who had a huge male demographic yeah. but apart from that it's always 90 95 female so it yeah. seems representative yeah um so if we would look at like maybe some of the main questions um and sort of drill down into those a little bit so I'm just looking at one of them here which was what was the primary reason why you returned to your injector and that's always an interesting sort of discussion piece um when you're talking to injectors and working out how you resonate with customers or patients sorry what are the the sort of intangible touch points what is it about your your communication style the relationship that you build with them and how that impacts so I'm really interested to sort of hear your your sort of takeaways from that and, and sort of what the study actually showed. And just to add in that the options that the, in oh, the yes. survey were trust, results, connection and understanding with the injector, customer service or convenience and cost. So, you know, pretty broad, broad, yeah. broad reasons. Yeah. Again, this was one of those things where I had to actually narrow it down. And the reason I narrowed it down to those things were that they encompassed um, a number of other factors. So, for example, you know, results from your previous injectables. That's um, So this question, just to clarify, was only answered by people who had been back to the same practitioner more than yep. once. And so it was literally saying, why would you choose to go back rather than go somewhere else? And um, try and determine whether that, again, differs by age group, um, or whether it's fairly consistent. And what we what I knew from my background research into this area is that um, some people will, you know, 
make the decision because they think they're getting the best result or they liked their results and then other people will choose to go back to their practitioner because of the practitioner. And really it was trying to differentiate between those and see whether people were even aware of of what how why they made that choice and how they made that choice. Hmm. And so what was really interesting was that um you know people chose to go back people actually consciously were aware that they chose to go back to their practitioner because they trusted them and uh, we know that trust comes from what I've described and I might go into this in a bit more detail but what I describe as these functional quality factors do you want me to explain this now yeah why not so as I said when I was looking into this whole area I came across some studies within medicine, but nothing within cosmetic injectables and a lot of studies in the business literature, which described that people judge the quality of their, um, you know, product or service, whatever you're looking at, based on two things. One is what we call technical quality and one is what we call functional quality. And for us in medicine, uh, a really good example is if you're having a knee operation, your technical quality might be your the speed of the operation, the morbidity and mortality ratings of your surgeon, your pain scores after the operation, your speed to getting back up on your knee, um, your range of movement after recovery. It's, it's literally how good was your knee replacement and how well did that surgeon do mm-hmm. and, and how well do they do. The functional quality of that knee replacement can include all sorts of things. How nice was the surgeon? How nice was your hospital room? How nice were the nurses? How good was the food in the hospital? (laughs) Um, You know, did someone come to you when you rang the buzzer because you're in pain? And what I found absolutely fascinating is that when you actually ask someone, how good do you think the results of your knee replacement were, they will rate it judged by those functional quality factors rather than actually what the surgeon would have, which yeah. is, you know, how good are they? Um, how good was the knee replacement? How What's the range of movement? What were the pain scores? How many of their patients died? That's what the surgeons care about. The patient doesn't. They don't, they don't choose their surgeon based on how many of their patients died on the operating table. They choose it on whether or not the bed was comfortable and the food was good. And the surgeon was nice to them. And so I just thought, God, this is fascinating, right? So if we go and treat a patient and, you know, we do their cheeks or we do their lips and we do their Botox and we post our before and after photos showing, you know, that they've got a millimetre lift in their eyelid and, you know, (laughs) volumised here and there, um, and we go, great, look, isn't that a good result? The patient can't see that. They cannot even see. I mean, we all know we put up a photo of a before and after in front of our patient and we go, oh, doesn't it look great? And they go, is this going to get a bit better, you know? Um, (laughs) And and you think, oh, my God, it looks so much better. You're not even looking at it. But, you know, so why is it? What is it that actually makes them go back? It's actually probably how they were treated. Well, that's a significant part of it. Just to... uh drill down on that do you think that that's the perception I, I think it translates more to hospital but a patient sort of assumes that a surgeon can do his job 
that you know the, for them the be- the bare minimum is my knee is going to get better and everything else creates that wonderful experience of feeling cared for and you know nice yeah. environment I and actually so think on. it's the same with us Jake I think that the majority of patients slash clients out there don't know really any different to thinking I'm going to an injector they can do what I want them to yes like, that's basically the same thing. They think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go and get some fillers. I'll go to XYZ mm. and I'll get what I want. I'll just be able to get my cheeks bigger and get my lips bigger and I'll show you the picture of the lips I want because anyone can just give me these lips, can't they? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's actually how people think. They think the technical part of it, it doesn't even cross their mind that, you know, you and I are spending 500 weeks a year, like, you know, studying new injection techniques and comparing like microscopic before and after changes and wondering how we can get a bit more lift or volume or Mm. shape or, you know, like we're focused on that. We're focused on the safety, the anatomy, the results, and they're not. They just think they can walk in and get what they want. Yeah, it's a transaction. it doesn't actually occur to them that it's technically hard. Yeah. I always want to know the mortality success of my anaesthetist. <laughs> Just putting it out there. I do care about that. Well, Just don't, don't, I, don't get Michael Jackson's one. Yeah. Can I suggest that you ask next time? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I do. Don't worry. I, I guess this is linked to the unsung hero. Yeah. I think we were going to ask it later. Dave yeah. and I were talking about this dynamic of you know, variability in, 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 I guess, levels of clinic. And I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head, Cara. Like, you know, many people will wander around Westfield and go, huh, this place does lips. I'm I'm just going to get some lips. It, it's a spur of the moment it does happen, transaction. Yeah. It, it's not, it, 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 it amazes me, but you, you were saying that that does happen. It does. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's a certain demographic of patient like that. My mum's never going to do that. My mum's going to research for 300 years, ask me 20 questions, get 10 referrals from people that I might know, and <laughs> then she might consider it, you know. But it is, you know, someone in their in their, in their 20s who's grown up with this being quite normal, they might just be, hey, you know, it's a sunny day. It's a get your lips kind of day and I'm, it's just going to happen, you know. So sometimes it does, it, does, it does occur, but it is certain demographics of patients for sure. Yeah. But it's um, it was interesting what you're saying, Cara, around – you know, psychology and the way that, and I've said this before on the podcast, is that, you know, as human beings, we make subconscious decisions based on emotion and then we will use logic to justify them. And it happens with everything that, that we do, whether it be purchasing a car, a new pair of shoes, or maybe selecting your injector. It's about that emotional connection, the, the intangibles, the things that you, you sort of can't capture, you can't measure, but they, they drive a lot of how you make logical decisions. Exactly. And, you know, that just using that, as another example, buying a car, right? Um, there's some really good studies out there that show that nobody checks all those numbers and figures on the re- on the specifications of, of the car they buy and works out which one has the highest safety profile and most likely to save you in an accident and can accelerate. Well, some people choose the one that accelerates fastest, <laughs> I suppose, but most all of them men. do it on... Tes- Tesla men. driver here. <laughs> <laughs> most people choose a car... On the look and the feel. And the mm. sexiness. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And and the kudos it may well give you. Yeah. And um, and that that brings me into why I think, you know, so many people like the overdone look because they think it brings them some sort of, you know, social currency because it's 
obvious that they're getting injectables. Mm. Um, just like, you know, if you buy a fancy car, um, everyone knows about it. Yeah. That's interesting. And so basically if you can get cosmetic treatments done, it, do, it, it sort of implies that you're of a certain social status or that you have access to surplus funds where you can certain groups yeah absolutely we've spoken about this you know for example and we joke but we have many um iranian friends that that that, you know you're not iranian if you haven't had a nose job they've all got breathing difficulties that's that's the way it goes all my iranian friends that have had nose jobs there was nothing wrong with their nose before they were perfect yeah the breathing difficulties but but the joking aside every surgeon we've had on many iranian friends we've had um maddie samay yeah they will joke but but are serious they say in iran it, it's a sim it's a social symbol it's a status yeah uh similar to the hollywood thing i guess to some extent well, i know i know Bormasif that. was saying that to us yeah i mean i've got lebanese friends as well and and, and a lot of the time they'll get um a gift like a, a nose job for a birthday or a graduation or something something mm. along those lines so it has been quite sort of normalized yeah. to a certain extent yeah going back to trust um because i think that was the highest ranking thing in, in your little list what 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 defines that how, how do you build that as an injector you know give give the listeners some bullet points as to what maybe they just haven't thought of that that is so obvious mm. so what we found was that um the the trust in your injector which which was sort of um stated as that you trust your injector has your best interests at heart um, was ranked slightly higher than the results from their previous cosmetic treatment. So just showing that even consciously that functional quality is as important, if not more important to people than the actual technical quality Hmm. of their, their results. And so trust is an interesting thing. And the reason we or I used trust and talking about trust is because it's been um, or it's said that people can fairly easily um, state how much they trust different people. And um, Jake made a good point of like, don't you just trust someone or not trust them? But actually not. Um, You know, you would say, maybe your, your wife or your mother, you know, I completely trust that they would do what's best for me. Um, my sister, maybe she'd, she'd do what's best for me if it suits her. Um, <laughs> and you know, my competitor down the road, I don't trust them at all. Like I don't trust that they're, they're going to do what's best for me. They're going to do what's best for them. So you can usually very quickly, um, determine how much you trust another person just just in terms of that feeling but what we know about trust is that it is actually a very complex emotion um which come which needs certain things to to exist to trust someone and in order to trust someone you normally need those functional quality things so you need communication you need listening you need empathy you need rapport and so if you have those things with your patient they will trust you Mm. uh, far as well as you know how you actually treat them in terms of the outcomes so trust requires at least some functional quality factors so you can't really trust someone if they you know don't give you any time don't listen to you you won't well you won't trust Mm. them However, um, trust actually, you know, does involve more than that. And from an injector point of view, I often teach uh, 
um, around this thing that's known as the trustworthiness equation. So there's a guy, um, Charles Green, who wrote a book called The Trusted Advisor, and it's very much a a business um, website and book, and it's all about developing trust with your customers. And Mm. he um, devised this this thing called the trustworthiness equation, and I love it. I just think it it's really easy to translate to any area and particularly our field. So the trustworthiness equation basically sums up trust as um, the sum of credibility, uh, reliability and intimacy over a denominator of self-orientation. So I'll just go through each of them. So trust equals credibility and credibility really is you know, that how good are you? It's kind of your technical quality. So credibility increases with your training. It increases with your qualifications. It increases with your reputation. It increases if you're a KOL. It increases if you're a doctor over a nurse um, because that's considered a a more credible, um, you know, level of training. It's not to say that nurses aren't credible, and in fact, nurses are also a very credible specialty, Um, but there are certain things that just increase your credibility. And the bottom line is you are as credible as you are, okay? So we can work on increasing our credibility by more years of experience, more training, more education, more qualifications, and we can all improve our credibility over time, but you can't do anything to manipulate it easily other than lie to your patients okay or or buy instagram followers because people believe that (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. well that comes back to the self-orientation i'll get to that in a minute yeah um so that's credibility then you've got reliability reliability is absolutely something that you can be and this is about setting realistic expectations so the reliable person says i think i can fix this and they fix it the reliable person says i can't fix that problem and then, you know, they don't fix it or they they make it a bit better, but they don't fix it. Um, so it's coming through with what you said you were going to do. And the worst thing you can do in terms of reliability is go is try to upsell yourself mm. and say, yeah, yeah, I can give you those lips and then not be able to give you the lips. And that's where reliability comes in. So it's all about setting realistic expectations and not, you know, over-promising what you're capable of. So knowing what you're capable of and, and then... Um, being able to explain it. And then intimacy, which, you know, I always say is not something that sounds like what you need with your patients, but <laughs> um, in our setting, it defines rapport. So intimacy is your connection and communication with your patient. And although this is something that in some cases is instant, right? We can have instant rapport with one patient and none with another. It's also quite amenable to improvement. So it's Um, along with reliability, something that we can all work on and work on how to develop that rapport with our patients. And um, one of the questions in the survey goes into that as well, which is that feeling of connection. So rapport is connection and communication. And um, rapport is a French word, which means to give back. So if you kind of give something out, then you sort of feel something come back and that that's that rapport. So rapport is definitely able to be developed. And in order to develop rapport, the big factors were time. People want time. They want to feel like they have, they've got some of your time and that you are giving them your time and, and then listening. Um, also very, very important. They want to feel like you're sitting there and you're listening to them. And um, the other thing which uh, is 
is important in building rapport is um, being like each other. So we talk about mirroring people and, you know, that's not trying to, you know, be single white female copying someone else's <laughs> behaviour or anything. Um, but it's it's really about, you know, finding similarities, using, you know, somewhat similar language. You know, it's not about making up something. It's about finding those things you might be able to connect on um, to, to um, find some common ground and that all helps in building rapport. And then the denominator in the trust equation is self-orientation. And self-orientation is really um, the thing, I suppose, that's going to decrease your trustworthiness. You've got to think about it like that. And everyone is a little bit self-oriented, okay? So you can't say don't don't be self-oriented, but you have to realise that things like your, you know, obsession with Instagram followers and that sort of thing, that's actually about you. It's not about your patients mm-hmm. um, wearing or, you know, showing off all your designer gear. Um, again, it's not about your patients. It's about you, your designer car. All those things are, you know, great. And some patients do love it because sometimes that's something you might connect on, right? That might be that mirroring where they've got the same Gucci handbag and you've got it and you talk about your trip to Gucci. Um, that's all very <laughs> exciting, but it's also self-orientation, okay? Yeah. And you need to kind of be aware that if you're, if the first thing you're saying to your patient when they come in is, can I post your lips on my Instagram um, profile? Some people love that, but it's also still about you. It's not about them. So you posting their lips is for you. It's not for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, in your little list of that first question, cost came the least and yet Again, we have this dynamic, particularly here in Australia, where the chain clinics survive on low cost, high volume, and they seem to be doing pretty good. So there seems to be some discordance with what people are saying in the reality. I don't know. Mm. Maybe it was just the cohort that you spoke to. Yeah, look, I was I was really interested in that too. And um, I actually have got, you know, a, a bunch of questions around cost and, um, you know, whether or not people choose their injectables and um, on cost. So I think I've got, I'm just having a look at my um, mm. actual results here. But there was something like um, 12% of people that um, said that they would choose a bargain like they would choose their injectables for a bargain price or a, a or a discount code yeah um and then maybe another um 20 or so that said that they sometimes would go on on price so there's there's still a significant number it's just not the majority and it's not everybody hmm. and on Another question that kind of looked into that in another way was saying that you would actually pay more for good quality treatments mm. and um, uh, services. And again, the majority said they would, not everybody. And in um, in the younger age group, it, it was a little bit higher, but it was not hugely higher. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, my take-home message from that was, I'd probably stereotyped, you know, everyone under 30 that they just choose their injector on cost, but actually they don't. I think a lot of the time they don't know what they don't know 
as we said before, they don't know if there's any difference between Westfield and, um, you know, Stephen Lou. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe value is also a word that could be thrown in there because cost is, is sometimes a bit of a obtuse word um, in that sometimes people will, will see the cost based on what they're receiving in return from a value perspective. So what was my experience like? What was the clinic like? How did they make me feel? Is it yeah. worth, I'm happy to part with X amount of extra dollars because I'm getting better value. It's a value proposition potentially, you know. So there's a lot of nuance I think with that as well. But I, I was really interested in what you were saying about the communication thing because I'm sort of winding my mind back to all the, the sales training that I used to have back in the day in, in, in former lives. And, you know, we used to get taught that stuff, that matching and mirroring things. And and the gurus to come in and, and talk to us about it was that the way that they explained it was as human beings, we're, we're constantly seeking for commonalities whether it be, as you said, like a sports team, the sort of car that you drive, the sort of music that you listen to, even down to the way that you communicate, the rate at which you breathe, the, your eye movements, all those sorts of things. And the way it was sort of explained was that as soon as your brain recognizes commonalities, we're constantly seeking, searching out for these commonalities. And as soon as our brain recognizes that, it's almost like it allows communication to take place. Mm. The barriers go down because we can both be speaking English, but if I don't have that rapport, that connection with you, then what I'm saying isn't as effectively taken in by you and vice versa. Mm. That's why you meet some people and you go, God, I really like that person. And you don't, you mm. can't really put your finger on it. It's because you've, you've found commonalities. You've, you've built that rapport or some people you just instantly don't like because you can't. It's like you're speaking different versions of the same language. Yeah. I don't know if that makes any totally. sense yeah, or not. It totally yeah. does. Totally yeah. does. Yeah, and actually, Absolutely. I remember in my medical training, <laughs> I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, yeah. we had training in communication where we had to sit down with actors and they would pretend <laughs> to be the angry patient, the sad patient, the, the whatever. And and again, yeah, we were taught to sort of adopt a similar posture, you know, volume similar yeah. to them, good eye contact, you know, all, the, all this soft yeah communication skills if you don't, if you sort of stand in there sitting, immediately there's like a weirdness. Yeah. Well, I've got a... um a friend that's a, a midwife and she was telling me that even like matching your breathing rate to your child will make them feel comforted, will make them feel more, more calm. And it's, mm. again, it's just, you know, I guess an example of that, of that sort of behavior or the, yeah, it's int really interesting stuff. Yeah. So moving on to one of your other questions, it was what percent of patients felt like they had one specific feature that needed fixing? Mm. And I've got the data here. I think about 15% said, no, no, that's not me. 40% said somewhat and 45% said yes. Now, you know, as an injector, that's slightly concerning. And I don't know if you asked the question in, in a deliberate way of using the word fixing, because, you know, us as, as you know, more experienced injectors, we, we sort of hear a red flag when, when patients talk about fixing. But what, what was your motivation to ask that question? And what did you think of the answers? Yeah, so I... I specifically asked this question um, to kind of flag those red flags mm. um, and was shocked at, at the results of this. So this was a series of 13 statements. Um, it was the first question after demographics in the study and it it stated that the following statements are regarding how patients feel um, and their thoughts 
around cosmetic injectable treatments. So please tell us whether this describes you well, it somewhat describes you or does not describe you at all. So it was really just a choice of three options. And um, these 13 statements were a range of things, particularly around motivation. So, you know, do you think something needs to be fixed? Are you unhappy with your appearance? Are you... um, you know, seeking natural treatment? Do you like a very done, aesthetically enhanced look? Are you worried people might think you are vain? Um, I Do you choose your, um, would you choose cost uh, injectables on cost? Uh, would you forego other uh, things to get your injectable treatments done? Um, and, um, you know, really, you know, are you are you very proactive about all anti-aging? Are you, you know, fearing that other people will notice you've had stuff done? So all those sorts of things that were aimed at getting inside some of the reasons why people come to see us. And one of the main reasons I did that was because I thought that those those statements really helped group people into certain um patient archetypes to some Mm. degree and that we might see that patient archetypes changed or patient motivation changed by age group or by patient um, persona, we might see different results in why they then choose a cosmetic injector or how they choose their cosmetic injector or why they went back and what the important things are for them to trust their injector and so on. Mm. So there were, as I said before, two reasons. One was really just to explore it and the other reason was to um, see whether that changed then some of the other results or the questions that I had thereafter. So this particular question that you were referring to, it was put in there to sort of uh, seek out those those red flag patients. And one of the reasons I put this in, Jake, was to work out whether those people that think they need something fixed, and, and that is a bit of a body dysmorphic disorder, red flag, or possibly a correction patient that does, mm. you know, have a scar or something that they want fixed. But what I was wondering is, you know, if you look at that group on their own, then do they, you know, always swap injectors, never happy with their treatment, don't trust their injector? But actually, no. And what I did find was that there was a bizarrely high number of people, as you said. So the question just to recap was, do you feel that you have a specific feature or area that causes you to be self-conscious and needs or needed to be fixed? Mm. And only 15% of people said it does not describe them at all. And with 40% saying it somewhat described them and 45% saying it described them well. So it was it was really quite shocking to me that 45% of people thought that they actually had something to be fixed. But when I flipped that around and thought about all the possible reasons people would say yes to that question, I thought, well, Actually, you know, the number one reason people come in to see us is that is that they go, oh, I just want this fixed. You know, yeah, I just want this language, yeah. I don't want I don't want too much. I'm not, you know, I don't want to look vain. I don't want to look like, you know, Kim Kardashian. I just want this fixed. And so when you flip it like that, actually I suppose it's not that unusual, but I thought it was more of a red flag. Hmm. But I also think that what it shows me 
is that patients don't see their whole faces, right? Mm. So the majority, the vast majority of people said yes, that they just wanted something fixed. And actually, if you think about it like that, we look at someone and say, you've got to do a full face assessment. You have to look at your whole face. You need to stand back and look at your photo or look at yourself in a mirror. Like you can't look at yourself like this in a mirror (laughs) and just look at what you think needs to be fixed. And that's actually what we're seeing. We're seeing that actually 85% of people are still looking at themselves in a mirror like this and just seeing the one thing they think needs to be fixed rather than having that ability to step back and assess their whole face. Mm. And I think that's what it told me. Mm. Also, it'll be also interesting. I don't know whether you sort of delved into this sort of detail or maybe, or maybe this is the next survey that you're going to do in terms of does fixed infer um, correcting something that used to be correct that is now incorrect or was it the way that you were born or a feature that you just don't like that you deem needs fixing because it's not in line with what we consider beautiful or what you consider yeah, beautiful? Yeah, look, and this this was meant to be broad it was yeah. you know it was really just saying you know are people fixated on on something they think needs to be fixed mm. and um and you know we think automatically bdd but yeah. probably it's just a normal um spectrum of people coming in to have injectables yeah yeah one of your next questions was do you want to slow down aging but still look natural so i guess in a way it's almost the opposite question but your answers were about 1% said no, 12% said somewhat, and 86% said yes. Does does that fit with your demographics? Because, of course, 20 to 30-year-olds and, and younger don't want to look younger. But, well, I, I don't imagine they do. And yet 86% are saying, yes, I want to look, well, I yeah, want to slow down aging. Again, this was probably a badly written statement in a way because it includes two things which you could maybe separate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's slow down or reduce the signs of aging, but want to look natural. So this was really trying to find who are those positive ages. And I thought the people who were the younger generation that want to look more enhanced would say no. Yeah. I, you know, this is not me or it somewhat describes me, but actually just the, the fact that 86% of people said yes, I think it, um, I think people read you want to slow down the signs of aging yes yeah. <laughs> um because you know who doesn't right that's that's kind of the number one reason actually that people are coming in to get injectables and it was only the kind of after thought where it says but want to stay natural that probably people went no oh, yeah somewhat describes <laughs> me if i'm not that fussed about natural yeah um and the reason that just about everyone said yes or somewhat for this question was because they just read, you want to slow down the signs of aging? Yes, please, give yes, please, give it to me. <laughs> um, and, you know, again, it comes down to then looking at some of the other questions, which uh, the next um, statement, which I'm not sure if you actually had, Jake, was that you love a cosmetically enhanced and done, in inverted commas, look. Yes, so this yes. sort really- of qualified that first question. Yeah, so this was really to sort of try and say, well, um, exactly, uh, who actually loves this Kim Kardashian look? Like, really, we want to see this. And, again, I was really, really surprised because, as you know, the majority of um, the patients in the study or the bigger groups were the sort of um, under 35s, and I only had 5.7% of people say that this described them well. So I went, well, let's break that down a little bit. And in our sort of Gen Z group, which is 
the the age bracket up to 24 years, so these are the 18 to 24-year-olds, I still only had 12% say that this described them well. Mm, So you love the cosmetically enhanced and done look. Only 12% of the youngest age group said yes, Um, which, again, like really, really surprised me. And I, I think what I take from this is that, you know, the majority of people, um, despite the fact that many of them do look cosmetically enhanced or done or over-augmented, it's actually not the look they're seeking out. It's I, I agree with that. In their mind, yeah. that they don't realise they look like that and that's either because it's normalised around mm-hmm. them and yep. they think that is, that's still natural um or they are trying to achieve something else and end up kind of that sort of repeating those same treatments over and over and i find this a lot you know someone will go and have their cheeks and lips done and they look great and so they think well to look more great i must just need a bit more and they have a bit more done they think oh yeah and then they go back to the same injector who only does cheeks and lips and they say do i need more and the injector goes yeah, yeah, you need more because they're there. What else are they going to say? They can't give them anything else if that's their skill set, so they'll do more. And it's just this perception drift where they don't realise that they've drifted into odd-looking yeah. um, rather than, the you know, the, the, the beautiful or beautified look that they're after. Yeah, I, think- I completely agree with that. It, it's very rare that someone will come in, and I don't tend to see that demographic much anymore, but, you know, no one voices, I want to look done today. They will say, you know, I just want a little bit and, and so on. And and like you say, the perception drift is, it's so multifactorial. A, a, a lot of patients, for whatever reason, they base it on a time thing. Well, I haven't done it in a year, so I'm back for it again. Mm. And it's so arbitrary. You're like, okay, but you still look good. Let, let's get out your old photos and, and you sort of show them that they're still looking good. And it's almost just like a, a need to do just a little bit more. It's almost like an addiction, isn't it? I mean, people, people get addicted to having treatments done. It's not even sometimes the outcome. It's the process of sitting in the chair, you know, getting things put in. Like it, I, I guess it could become habitual. Yeah. I mean, I, I sort of joke with people. Sure. I, I say, you know, it's, it's not the drug itself that's addictive, but it's, it's great. You. It's, it's no, nice no, to, no, just to be told you look good. No, just start ejecting saline. See how you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, I don't even think Kim Kardashian looks that extreme anymore compared to some of the people <laughs> no, I see walking no. around. She looks pretty conservative I, compared I to some of I the. Yeah, really. I'm, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. very. Please don't sue us, Kim, if you're listening. <laughs> okay, one of your next questions was: Are you happy investing time and money in the best quality treatments and products? Two percent said no. 33% said somewhat and 66% said yes. So, you know, a majority saying yes or, or a third are saying maybe. How, how did you interpret that question? Well, again, I, I was a little bit surprised and I was surprised that it didn't vary more between, um, you know, the different generations or age groups. Um there was another question that uh, stated you choose your cosmetic injectable treatments by the best price or deal available mm. and only 8% of people um, said that that described them well, but there was 26% that said somewhat. Mm. So like I was saying before, you know, there's a fair group that um, are driven, you know, by cost or 
as David put it, maybe by value. But I think the assumption that people, I think it's a mistake to think that discounting is the best way to treat your patients. And yeah. that, that's what I take from this, which is if you can show them quality, if you can give them your time, if you can build rapport and you can communicate well with them and show them what you can give them and what you can deliver them and that you will walk that fine line between striking and weird looking, um, you know, they will they will pay for it. And actually most people will pay for it if they if they understand the difference in, in what you can deliver then they'll pay for it. So, you know, to young injectors out there, don't assume you have to go bargain basement to get patients. That's yeah. that's my message here. I think, you know, you can actually aim high, you can deliver a really good service and build trust and rapport rather than go, well, everyone's just going to choose the cheapest option. They're not. Yeah. I think that um, the industry is maturing. I think people as a whole are becoming better at what they do and I think that if you look at a lot of injectors out there most of them can deliver you know fairly acceptable results I'm talking in, in gen general terms and I think from my perspective what separates really successful injectors from people that sort of mediocre is you know as we're getting to how they make their patients feel what's their, what's what is the experience that they're having in in your clinic or in your treatment room and I think it's just an expectation, and you've sort of alluded to this, Jake, as well. I think it's the expectation that you do get a decent result these days. People don't walk in expecting, you know, to walk out like a freak show or with, you know, a huge hematoma on their lip or, you know, it's the expectation that you walk in, you'll get a good outcome, you're going to walk out with all your faculties, no occlusions <laughs> and, and everything, and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. I was wondering if we could sort of mirror the first question where trust was the highest mm you know, value versus cost and this one where a third are saying somewhat. Do you think that that sort of shows that, you know, the ideal for people is, yes, I want to trust this person and I want to connect with them. But the reality is that sometimes cost, it's not that they're choosing it, it's it's, the, it's their reality. They have to, you know, base it on budget at the end of the day. There's a there's a mixing of, of want and need, I guess. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's always going to be... Um, you know, a market for people that want to do this at lower cost. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. So long as you're not compromising, you know, your patient care. Um, and I and I understand if you're doing low cost, you don't don't have necessarily the same ability to have the time and relationship with your patients. But I think it's it's really important for injectors to realize that you know, it's not that trade-off isn't always the way it is. Like people think, you know, if we're low cost, we have to have high volume and see more people and I don't have the time to have that relationship. But that relationship will pay off because those people will keep coming back, they will refer their friends, they will keep your list full and they will trust you to make decisions for them. So if you say you should do, you know, two mils of filler today instead of just your Botox, then they'll probably do it because they trust you and you've built that relationship. Whereas if you just, you know, stab them and out of there, um, that's that's much less likely. So, you know, it doesn't have to be either or, but you should be aware that prioritising just cost is probably not going to be the best business decision, I don't think, in the long run. Yeah. yeah. 
get the patience that you deserve. That's what we've, that's, that's been the quote of the month so far. Correct. <laughs> so one of the other questions, Cara, was, are you critical of your own image and do you avoid looking in mirrors and obsessing over what's wrong? And um, again, I'm fairly, I guess, split results, 30, 38.5% of people said no, 36 or 35.4 said somewhat and 26.1% said yes. It's quite shocking. It is. Yeah, it is. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Were the, were the takeaways <laughs> anything that was out of the ordinary or unexpected? <laughs> Just in case people aren't figuring this out, that's a very BDD question, right? Yes. Yes. Central. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So you are critical of your own appearance, and either avoid looking in the mirror or obsess over what is wrong. So, yes, it is. It's quite extreme. Um, and so, again, it surprised me initially that only 38% said, no, this does not describe me. And actually, the rest said either it somewhat describes them or describes them well, 26%. And again, it, you know, it really made me evaluate what people were thinking when, you know, they're looking at themselves and when they're coming in to see us and how they're feeling about themselves and, um, you know, my immediate thought was, again, this is a, a red flag patient. You know, I, I have actually said that you don't look in the mirror or you obsess over yourself. Um, but then, you know, there is a spectrum here and BDD or body dysmorphic disorder is when this interferes with your life, basically. You know, you spend so much time obsessing over something that it interferes with your normal social um, functioning. Yeah. And I think that there are many, many, many people on this spectrum that don't qualify for the disorder. And that's what we need to realise that, and, you know, I really think social media has, has a huge role to play in this situation where people really have a high level of self-criticism and comparison now mm. and their self-esteem is is going down um, or, you know, seems to be getting worse. So we need to be very aware that these people do feel like this and that I don't think it's the treatment. This is where it right, comes back to everything that I go on and on about, where I don't think it's the treatment that's probably going to make them feel a whole lot better about themselves. Because if you just give them the treatment and look at their before and after photo and you go, wow, you definitely look better, they won't see it. Yeah. These people, and this is, you know, majority of people that answered this survey, the majority of people will probably look at those before and after photos and still go, I oh, still look crap. That, yeah. You know, um, well, I find something else. That's the mindset that they came in with. And if you as the practitioner are not prepared to work with their mindset and actually, um, you know, work on that side of it as well so that they're not pinning all their hopes on your treatment, making them suddenly feel better, you're going to get yourself in trouble because we need to be really aware of this group of patients and they're not necessarily disordered they're not the people that we need to say let's like we cannot treat them we're going to get ourselves in trouble because there are a group of them but the spectrum is huge and if we don't pick that up before we inject them you'll just spend a lot of time and energy trying to talk them into the fact that they do look better and your treatment did work and 
you know, hand holding forever to come. Yeah. You pick it up beforehand, you explain to the patient, this is not going to look perfect to you. You're not going to see past this problem still. You're still not going to be, you know, looking in the mirror and thinking everything's perfect. If you actually set that expectation up front, then they can see the improvement and they actually go, oh, yeah, you know, I can see I've improved. And it. But if you don't do that before you do the treatment, you try and do it after, you just spend a whole lot of time and angst um, sorting it out later. Can I ask, it's not to do the survey, but I don't know if you introduced this prior or, or since getting some of these results, but do you have a specific um, psychological profiling, personality profiling, or even a BDD screening questionnaire or, or not maybe something not as explicit, but, you know, do, do you delve into that explicitly or is it a bespoke thing? If you get a, a funny feeling, that sixth sense, you obviously explore it, but do you do something mandatorily or not? Um, no, I actually don't, Jake. And I think, I think I do have a bit of a sixth sense, you know, which is probably why I'm, I'm fascinated by this whole area. Right. And, you know, my, my fascination and where my, all my teaching comes back to is you've got to work all this out before you touch them, Yeah. right? And if you look at every one of these statements in my study, it's stuff that I work out before I touch them. Yeah. You know, do they feel like this? What? How are they going to react? You know, because you've got some that react after treatment and you know that they're going to be like feeling every lump and bump and think they've got a problem and their <laughs> face is going to go hard and lumpy and stay like that forever. And then you've got the ones that are never going to be able to see the improvement they've got. And then you've got the ones that, you know, you have to work out what that those personality and mindset factors are before you start. Because if you can actually preempt their reaction and their behavior after treatment, and you say to them, look, you're going to be worried about it. You're going to feel like it's lumpy and bumpy. You've got to not touch it. You know, you're going to expect X, Y, and Z, or you're going to still look in the mirror. And within a week, you're not going to be able to see where the treatment is. You're going to think it's all gone. You know, it's, and and that's all my con- con- consultation process is preempting how I think that patient's going to react to the treatment, predicting it, putting it back to them. And then they feel re- really reassured when that's how they feel because they feel like you get them and you've connected with them. And also you've saved yourself a whole lot of, um, you know, follow-up problems. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I, you know, having done it for 14 years, I'm probably at that level now. But for new injectors, I, I, I don't think that they can see past the technique that they that they might have to do on those cheeks and and everything else is just too too above them. I, I don't know. I think you you gather that with with basically mistakes and and those occasional bad consultations that you learn from and then you realize, oh, okay, I'm seeing that sort of behavior again. So I'm just trying to think of a way that new injectors might be able to introduce something that is almost you know a little bit more of a a trigger to them to ask some questions. I don't know. Mm. I don't know how we do this. Or how I need to come them. to one of my teaching sessions, Jake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Well, how do you how do you say no to those patients that you deem that are on the end of the spectrum that potentially could be problematic if you treat them, you're, you're feeding an illness that they need to go and see a professional about that specialises in, in those types of issues? So that's a very difficult conversation to have. I've heard stories of people having chairs thrown at them and, and all sorts of things. So how do you handle that in a way that 
doesn't destroy the relationship and doesn't make you feel awful that you've upset someone and, and maybe send them in, a, in into a spiral or maybe they didn't realise they had an issue because it's a very delicate conversation to have, I would imagine. I have never had a chair thrown at me, so, okay. yeah. That's, Come to that's Sydney. a bonus. <laughs> uh, look, you know, it's. I don't think it's easy for anyone. I think it, it does require experience and um, guts to say no and yeah, I, I don't. I don't get many patients. I really don't have many patients, and I think it, it's partly just due to my demographic and older age group, and um, you know, possibly just a more considered group that I see. So I don't. I don't find I have many that I say say no to or need to. Um, but I think the way I do it, if I need to, is I say um, I don't think I can. You know, I just don't think I can give you what you're going to need to make that look better or for you to feel better. And I think, you know, you have to open up that conversation. I mean, the way I tend to do it is, is you know, play it, play, be self-deprecating and say, look, I just don't think I can fix that for you. I don't think that's in my skill set. And, um, I, you know, I've, and, and often it's, is it is in the aftermath, right? You've done someone's lips or whatever it might be, and they're like, you know, this side's still a bit different to that side, and this side's a bit higher, or this side's more projected, or and you're like, oh, geez, you know, I just didn't pick it. And you know, you often go back to the photos. Great photos are a must because they will often not be aware of, of you know, the asymmetry or whatever they had beforehand. But, you know, if they want you to fix something and you've, you realise that, you know, it's not going to be fixed, I say, I, I don't, I really don't think I can fix it. Um, I'm, I'm more than happy to, you know, suggest uh, someone. If they're really psychologically affected, then I will, I will open that up and I just say, look, you know, you are thinking about this way more than, um, you know, it, it not not more than it deserves, but more this the amount you are thinking about this problem is out of proportion to the problem. Yeah. And you know, I think that if we can get some help with just how much it's affecting you, then you're going to feel a lot better about it. And I don't think that me trying to fix it anymore is going to make you any better. So look, they're hard conversations, and I think many people just try and um, you know, do the treatment to. <laughs> to get get a get around it but yeah end well and yeah make a rod for your own back someday mm. you're constantly chasing an outcome that you're not going to be able to achieve and they're never going to be happy with yeah i i guess it, it it's never easy but it sounds so obvious but if you literally tell them the truth like i actually don't think i can do that you you do need to see a surgeon if you want that lift mm. or you know you've got this loose hanging skin around your neck there is no injectable that I can do to make that better. It, but if you truly, if they truly think that, if you truly think they've got body dysmorphic disorder, that's just kicking the can further down the road. Oh, correct. Now, if they've got BDD. Letting the surgeon. Do no, 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 no. Um, yeah, but if it's just but, something that you can't fix, then that's that's an easier conversation. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. And they could be hard to pick because there are patients who are particular they're perfectionists. They know exactly what they want. They're educated. Mm. They might not be body dysmorphic. They could just be high maintenance patients. Mm. Sometimes that can be hard to pick as well. I actually think they're harder because yeah. it's harder to say to them, 
oh, for God's sake, stop worrying about it, than it, <laughs> yeah. it is to say, you know, this is an, you, you're, this, you know, it's an abnormal amount of stress this is giving you. Um, and that's sort of how I try to put it. As if I really think they're body dysmorphic, I say this is affecting you more than it should and you're not happy. You know, we need to sort that out. Yeah, fair enough. Now, I think you ended your um, talk that you did with us, not the paper, but the talk with a sort of suggested consultation flow. And it was, I th- it was sort of divided into three phases. One was sort of focused on the patient, then the practitioner, and then together. Do you, do you remember that? Yes. Can you just summarize that? Because I think it will it'll be a nice way to wrap up the, the podcast and maybe give, you know, some of the listeners yeah. a bit of a framework of how they might, you know, go about their consultations. Yeah. So as I said um, previously to Jake, I, you know, I don't think that every practitioner should be doing exactly the same consultation and everybody should be doing, you know, asking these questions and then doing this and doing that. Everyone works a little bit differently. It's going to depend on that instant rapport or lack thereof you may have with the patient. It's going to depend on how they've come to you, from where, how much they trust you already. Some people come with a huge amount of trust. They're like, my best friend said, just do whatever you say. And just show me where to sign, you know. And others, you just have to reassure them and relax them and, you know, get to know them. And then, you know, so my consultations can be extremely variable in, in time, length and, you know, substance as well. But I still always have in my mind um, this this kind of diagram, which is what Jake is talking about, which is that there's sort of three parts to the consultation. So the first thing is what is the patient bringing in with them, right? And so that's my first job is to work all that out. And that comes down to their medical history, their social history, their drug history, their um cosmetic history so you know they're very medical questions and you can start by just going through the the standard history taking that we all know and love but at the same time they're not just bringing in all that they're bringing in what those motivations are what their goals are what their social status is who they're really doing it for what their kind of expectations are from the treatment what you know so they're bringing in all that psychological stuff with them and so you're You've got to take your history, but you've also got to make sure you get that information and nut that out whilst you're taking the history or else kind of dive deep dive into it a bit more if you don't feel like you've got it in that history taking. So that's kind of like my, what's the patient bringing with them? Like, what is all their history? What do I need to do? And then it's like, and then what's the practitioner's job? So that's the patient then it's the practitioner. What's our job in the consultation? Well, our job is to actually assess their face. So, you know, we're constantly looking at them, taking photographs if we need to, um, you know, holding a mirror up and, and, you know, looking at their face, assessment, movement, volume loss, aging, skin texture, all those things that we do. So they're the, the parts of the consultation that we have to do. But at the same time, we're trying to build that rapport and we're trying to build trust and we are trying to work out whether our um, ability 
is going to fulfill their expectations. So is there an ability to expectation mismatch here? So if you're a brand new injector and you're there going, gosh, this is a really difficult patient. Uh, they're going to need, you know, really a full face of treatment. Their temples are the worst thing. I don't do temples. Um, you know, you should be actually thinking this: the expectation of this patient or the needs of this patient is not in keeping with my ability. And, you know, in that situation, don't just do their lips um, <laughs> because that's the only thing you can do. Actually have that conversation with them. Say, look, actually, you know, this is what you really need. It's probably beyond what I can do, but perhaps we can go down this path or whatever because I, I really think that that is where you build the relationship and they'll probably be your patient for life even if you've basically said you can't treat them at that point for yeah. whatever. And I've got patients still now that I saw when I first started and, you know, I couldn't do half of what they needed, but they knew that, you know, and, and now they have it all. Um, so that's really what the practitioner is bringing. It's your skill set to what can you do, what can you actually do, assess their face and can you meet their expectations. And then, you know, once you find that match, it's like then you're on the journey, right? And I try to make it a journey of it's not about today. It's about today, you know, one year, two years, five years, ten years. What are we trying to achieve? How long is it going to take to get there? What's it going to cost? How do you want to break it up? Um, what's your maintenance going to be? I try and cover all that off, really. Basically, even if it's not all the detail, I, I kind of get to some degree because then they're like, they're like, oh, okay, well, this is this is not just today's treatment. This is like I'm I'm here for life, mm. um, and and it does it sets you up for life. And then you know you only have to do that once. You do that once, and and you've got uh, a long term relate patient relationship and a very loyal, trusting um, patient and good rapport. Mm. I was just going to add a little tip to what you said, uh, Cara, around when you have a patient that comes in that wants something that perhaps is beyond your scope of expertise or training, perhaps you're a new injector. I think it can be quite confronting for someone to say to their client, I'm not good enough yet, or I'm not skilled enough. And it can be quite, quite confronting and almost you know, dis for make them feel disempowered. And I think that um, a tip that I got from my business partner many years ago, Cassandra down in uh, Kiambra, used to tell me that um, we'd have new injectors who would come into our business and they're moving through their, their training um, sort of regime. You know, they start off with cheeks and they graduate onto different areas of the face. And we'd always locate other injectors either within the business, um, potentially you could do it even without, outside your practice, who you know you can trust, they're not going to take patients from you, is to say, you know what, the best person to do this for you is this person. Mm. And that way you're not saying, you're not downgrading yourself, but you're actually saying the best person who does, they, they do the best temples. I'm going, to, I'm going to send you to this person or this injector within the practice. And it's just a nice way of not of saving face for yourself and promoting someone else that you know is going to return that client to you at some point. So just, just from my experience, it tended to work quite well and make new injectors. Yeah, it's a great cooler. idea. And, you know, yeah. just even buddying up with someone yeah. um, that you can kind of pair up with. But if you've, if you've kind of done done that type of consultation with them, and then said, right, you have to do your temples because otherwise you'll be out of balance. You know, they're just going to completely trust you. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
even if you are fairly fairly new and inexperienced. Yeah. Yeah, and who knows you could develop a little, you know, referral system back and forth and oh, maybe yeah. that more experience injector may thank you for that by training you well, or mentoring you or something. Well, it just goes back to, you know, what we keep preaching on the podcast, which is people working together mm. and helping each other and supporting each other and building, you know, communities where we can all feel safe to make mistakes and to, you know, have people around us that can help us when we run into trouble or can do things that are outside of our scope. Absolutely. So to conclude the podcast, do you just want to sort of summarize, you know, your, your thoughts on the data that you gathered and <clears throat> where, where are you going to publish it? Where have you sent it? And, when might we read a paper about the study? Um, hopefully, hopefully it'll be submitted in the next week. Actually, oh, excellent. Uh, but I've been sort of saying that for a few weeks, so we'll see. I'm, you know, waiting on a few helping hands to yeah. get back to me again. But these things are notoriously slow, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Um, look, I think. I think one thing we briefly touched on, but I think it's really the take-home message uh, from from my data is that when the patients um, have a high level of trust in their injector, they also think that their cosmetic results were were very good. Mm. And um, when they had a lower level of trust, they they didn't. And that might say that you you know, trust your injector if they gave you good results or it might say that uh, if you trust your injector, you think you've had good results. Um, But we know that trust and connection and functional quality is just as important as the injecting you do. So just don't neglect it. Um, uh, When you're training, when you're starting out, when you're more advanced, don't think gosh, if if I had a dollar for every time I've been told, I just don't have time to do long consultations. Well, that time just pays off again and again and again. Uh, you, you can't afford not to do them is, is my take-home message. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Great, um, great advice. Did you want to um, remind us, you mentioned you do training school or masterclasses. Do you want to just tell the listeners about that? Anyone that's interested in doing some some training with you, Cara, we'll give you a little, a little plug. Uh, look, you know, I I mostly train with the farmers, so um, it's it's not as easy as you know uh, just di- dialing up a training session, um, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but you can follow me, Dr. Cara underscore dermatologist, on Instagram if you want some more tips and tricks. Um, a few things about uh, consultation will definitely be coming on there soon. Absolutely. Yeah, and actually, Cara does lots of nice little. Let's call them soliloquies because you're talking, you know, I guess to yourself or, or at the listener on Instagram. You'll talk about all sorts, sun care and, you know, vitamin. Anything skin, anything serums. skin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you, you do pick up, even if you, your skin knowledge is very basic, you can, you know, can learn some real good golden nuggets. Um, we have set up a WhatsApp group for our, you know, our more engaged listeners. And we'd, we had one question. I guess this is slightly off topic, but it's a good question maybe for more experienced um, injectors. So this is from Zainab. She's a dentist in Harrow in the UK. I was born in Harrow. There you go. There you go. And um her main struggle is slightly different. She says her waiting list is now about six months long because she's obviously juggling dentistry, cosmetic dentistry, as well as injecting. And she doesn't really know how to cater for her regulars who just want basic, you know, Botox when, when others are coming for maybe more ambitious treatments. I know she does lots of really nice um, non-surgical rhinoplasties. So what do you do? Do you cut off 
yeah, <laughs> who do you cut off or do you block the door to new patients? What what would your suggestions be? Cut off your nose to spite yourself? Probably not. Look, <laughs> I mm-hmm. I think there's two two things. One is if you can get somebody in to work with you, it's a great idea. Um, for example, in our practice, I I have a nurse. Um, but they don't actually do dermal fillers. But those patients that are just regular routine Botox, I just say, look, if you're just having Botox, get them to do it. They're easier to get into. They do mine, you know, so I trust them. And you know that you can reliably um, get the the simple repeat things done by someone else. That works really well. Um, And then I think the other thing is, you know, you'd be mad to cut off your regulars if they want to come. Um, at the end of the day, bang for your buck, you know, if you want to talk business, I think, yes, you might get patients that have a much bigger treatment first up and so on, but in the terms of the time you have to spend um, to do a repeat treatment for a regular patient who already completely trusts you and is going to do what you say, you know, you'd, you'd be silly to be really closing the door to them. So my second bit of advice, which I also do, is try to just book your calendar so you've got half for reviews or half for news or whatever it is um, in a way so that if you're new, then, you know, you might have to wait because the reviews get get their spots booked in. And, and obviously it's finite. We can't all just keep seeing more and more and more new patients. Yeah, um, just, just increase your prices, Cara. That's yeah, put your price up. <laughs> Shorten your well, waiting list, put your price up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree with that. You know, when you have days where it's like 10 new patients, it's exhausting. Mm. And if you have days where it's just Botox, 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 it's it's boring. It, it's nice to have a bit of a mix. So I would never want to lose those, you know, old timers where it's so easy and nice. Yeah. You also built up relationships with them. It's like catching up with a friend. I yes. guess, a lot of yeah. yeah, not yeah. all of them, but <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> so Cara, yeah, totally. all the ones listening to this. Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so Cara, we'll obviously uh, leave your details at the bottom of the podcast description so people can reach out. Please follow Cara. She's got a great account. Um, if you are interested in being on our WhatsApp group, we've also got the link on our podcast yep. description and also we'll be uh, throwing up your YouTube links, Cara. So we'll, we'll, Pick some yeah. best moments from this podcast. So while you put them on YouTube, while you thought I was busy texting, I'm actually taking notes of what we make good, good YouTube clips. So a man can multitask, kind of. So kind of. We'll I didn't we'll didn't even notice, David. Oh, there you go. Great. So thank you so much again for your time, Kyra. We really do appreciate it. It was nice to see you last week. Absolutely. And um, you too. Everything's busy. Well, thanks for having me on. I All hope worked. it was uh, useful for someone. I was great. <laughs> it was fantastic. And um, let us know when you're coming up to Sydney. We'd love to grab a Negroni with you. We won't do a, we'll do a real one. <laughs> yes. I yes. I will. Alcoholics. Every podcast we're talking about Negroni. No, we're not alcoholics. We, we don't go to meetings. We're good. We just we just <laughs> like a Negroni. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks very much, guys. For our latest news, upcoming guests, and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 